Let's pray together. Let's pray together. You know, the portions of that song are really, just as we turn our, our attention to the Lord in prayer, portions of that song are are just one songwriter's attempt, I believe, to illustrate uh, what Scripture tells us the throne room of heaven is like. John tells us in Revelation, Isaiah gives us a glimpse uh, in, his, uh, in his revelation as well of the throne room of heaven, that it's a place of matchless splendor and power and authority, rainbows of living color and all the rest. It's a phenomenal scene, and as believers, the assurance that we have is that we will one day be there, that that worship is happening around the throne of God, mercy seat of Jesus Christ right now, and as believers, one day we'll be there. And, and the way we gain entry is exactly what, and here's where, where, the, where the connection is made, is exactly what Mike shared with us just a, a little bit ago in communion, that though the wages of sin is death, the free gift, the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And anyone and everyone who's received that free gift is promised a ringside seat at the throne room of heaven which we're just singing. And Father, we are grateful for that this morning. We're grateful for the assurance that, that even on the most beautiful of summer days, Lord, and, and even when things in our life are, are going well and everything's going according to plan, even when everything seems just about perfect, Father, it's not even a glimpse of a taste, of a shadow, of a fragment of what it'll be like to stand in your presence, to fall on our faces in your presence one day in the throne room of heaven at the throne of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Worthy, worthy is his name. Jesus, we, we confess, we agree that you are the living Savior, the risen Lord, the King of kings, the one who has saved us. You are our rescuer, our Savior. You're our redeemer and you're our friend. And Father, we're we're so thankful for that, that as we stand before you this morning, having been taken to the cross, having sung your praise, and Lord, now opening your word, that you are the one shepherding and guiding us through this hour together, that you meet with us here when we come together in the name of Christ in a special way. And Lord, though we can't see you and we can't touch you and we can't necessarily hear your audible voice, we know that you're here. We are promised that you are here. And Lord, as we bring our worship and praise to you, you promise to draw near and to deal with and minister to us. Father, I don't know what anybody's heart is like this morning. I don't know what condition each one of us may have arrived in. But I know that wherever we were when we arrived, there's some place you want to take us, Father. And that is close to your side, closer to your heart, in step with our Savior and friend, Jesus Christ. And so, Father, that's why, in addition to everything else, we come to this time every week where we open your word. Father, because your word is a living word, and it's an active word, and it is, it is the one word we need to hear more than any other. And, Father, I pray that as we open the scriptures this morning, and that as I speak and my brothers and sisters listen, Father, that it will be the still, small voice of your Holy Spirit that we ultimately hear speaking to and dealing with our hearts. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your Holy Spirit. I thank you for the promise of your presence, and I plead with you now, Lord, as much as any other Sunday, oh, Holy Spirit, deal with our hearts. Open our eyes, uncover our ears, break our resistance. Father, help us to be ready even now to receive. We ask, as always, that you would come and guide us in truth. We ask, as always, that you would guard us from error and misunderstanding. We ask, as always, Father, that you deliver us from the baggage we carried in so that in these moments together, we might truly and clearly see Jesus. May we see Jesus clearly this morning in the teaching of your word. May we see Jesus only this morning in the teaching of your word. And Father, we're going to leave here in a little while. My prayer, as always, is that it would be rejoicing, not because we came to church and had a good time, but because we sat at the feet of Jesus, 
who laid his life down for us and took it up again. We thank you for that great love, and it's in the assurance of that love that we now go to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. While you're being seated, let's allow the boys and girls to leave for Children's Church. As always, they can head out the back door and go spend some time in the Word. And I want you to take out your Bible and uh, get into the Word with me as well this morning. If you have it handy, and I want you to start there now because we're going to a passage of Scripture that may not be one of the more familiar sections of the Bible that many of us spend a lot of time in, and that is the book of 1 Kings. I want you to turn your Bible to 1 Kings. Specifically, I want you to make your way to chapter 16. 1 Kings chapter 16 is where we're going to get started this morning. As you're turning there, now I've got you all with your heads looking down. Can I ask you just to look up a second and say, does it not look amazing in here? It looks different than last week, doesn't it? Pretty impressive, yeah. And um, and the, the project, there's a couple little things, but there's been a dramatic change in here over the last two weeks. It's a change, honestly, I've been praying for for about eight years, um, and I'm so thankful that it happened. And there's a, a story or two behind it that I'm not going to take the time to tell this morning, but maybe in a couple of weeks I will, of just how God has orchestrated us going from pale, white, dirty, chalky walls to just an even more, am I right? Well, am I right about that? Okay, we're laughing because we agree, um, but that the Lord has allowed us just to make this even a more beautiful and inviting place for us to come and seek his face. And so I just want to acknowledge that. Obviously, we know we're not here for a building, but but at the same time, we can be encouraged and blessed by it. And I, for one, am. I hope you are as well. I want you to, uh, as I said, uh, to turn in your Bible to 1 Kings 16. And we're going to get there um, in just a few minutes and work our way through the Scripture as always. But before we do, as you may have gathered, whether it's by the visual on the screen behind me or maybe something you saw in an email or in your bulletin, this morning we are beginning a brand new series of studies in God's Word. They're going to take us through the next couple of months of summer, the months of June and July, looking at the life and the ministry and the story of God's servant, the prophet Elijah. Now, I don't know how much you may or may not know about Elijah. Certainly, you've heard his name. Perhaps you've read his story. As I said, he may not be as familiar to you as as some other notable Old or New Testament characters. And so whether you you know Elijah and his story well, or maybe it's just one of those, another Bible name and, and a Bible figure that you're not as familiar with, before we get into what the Scripture says about him and what I want to say to you this morning of him as well, let me begin, because I think this may surprise you, It certainly did me, the language that was used. But let me begin this morning by sharing with you just some direct quotations of what some other past and contemporary great students of Scripture have said about God's servant, the prophet Elijah. Just listen to these words. This isn't anything you need to write down. I just want you to listen to what others who've studied his life carefully have said about him. One great student of Scripture describes Elijah as, quote, a rugged individualist a man of stern character and stern countenance. Another Bible student says that he, Elijah, I love this expression, was a Mount Sinai of a man. And he had a heart that was like a thunderstorm. Another commentator, another author says there was no one in Scripture quite like Elijah. Yes, there were other prophets, even more prominent ones than he, but Elijah's spirit and power, listen to this, Elijah's spirit and power were the standard by which all other prophets were measured. Another one calls him, goes so far as to say that Elijah was, quote, the greatest prophet of the entire Old Testament. Not only that, one of the most colorful and outspoken men in all of history, for he was a patriot as well as a prophet and served as the conscience of his country. 
And then there's one scholar who sums it up well, and I, again, I just love the language that he chose to use when he says that Elijah, this is a good summary for us to begin with this morning, was, quote, the grandest and most romantic, that's not love romantic, but colorful, dynamic, rich, vibrant character that the nation of Israel ever produced. <laughs> Lofty words. Big time talk. This man, God's servant, Elijah. Now that's what people outside the scripture, extra biblical sources, we might say, have to say about the prophet Elijah. But even if you get into the scriptures, and of course that's where we want to be, and you go to the New Testament, or, and, 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 and you begin to read through the Gospels and the letters which followed, what you find is that the prophet Elijah, there may be no other Old Testament prof, prophet who, who figures as prominently, who, who is referred to as frequently as Isaiah, or excuse me, as Elijah the prophet, was as well. You may recall, if you know the story of Jesus, that both John the Baptist and Jesus himself at various points in their earthly ministries, that people confused them wondering, is this the second coming of the prophet Elijah? Is this Elijah, the promised one who is among us? You may remember another occasion where it was Elijah who stood alongside Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was glorified before his disciples, and it says, Moses and Elijah were the two Old Testament characters God chose to reveal there on that occasion. You may recall that it was Elijah that people mistakenly thought Jesus was calling for. He hung dying on the cross in our place for our sins. Then there's what Elijah says about himself in a passage we're going to look at together in a couple of weeks in 1 Kings 19. And, and it is, in fact, the, the passage or the quotation that I've used to sort of uh, theme or, 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 or express what this new sermon series is all about. Because in 1 Kings 19, first of all in verse 10, and then again in verse 14, the prophet Elijah says this about himself. He says it the same way both times. He says it very emphatically. He says, I have been very zealous for the Lord. I am a man, if there's one thing you want to know about me, who is zealous about the God of Israel. He is my, his glory is my all-consuming passion. That's what my life and my ministry, Elijah was saying, are, are all about. And so for the next couple of months, that's who we're going to look at. We're going to look at the story of the life and the ministry of God's servant, Elijah. We're going to look specifically, as it says there on the screen behind me, at the glory of God, how the glory of God was manifested and revealed in the story of Elijah through all sorts of incredible and strange and, and sometimes some very ordinary circumstances. We're going to look at the life of a man who said, if you'll remember one thing about me, remember this, I'm a zealot for the Lord, and I'm not ashamed to say so. But along the way, we're also going to learn something surprising. At least it was surprising to me. And I think as we go through week in and week out, it may be surprising to you as well. And it's this, that despite everything, just in a very brief summary I've shared with you about Elijah, about his greatness and his reputation and his power and his influence and his legacy and all of these other things, you know what we're going to discover? Along the way, we're going to discover that God's servant Elijah the prophet was a whole lot like us. That despite everything great I've just said to you about him, he was a man very much like us. In fact, in the New Testament, in the book of James, and we'll go here later uh, before we're done this morning, James chapter 5, James in writing about Elijah says this, he says specifically, directly, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Despite all the great things he did, he was just like you 
and that he was just like me. He was a man, as you'll see in the weeks to come, a man who experienced some very high highs, a man who walked through some very low lows, a man who confronted some very unusual and frightening circumstances, and a man who in some ways lived in times and confronted challenges very much like the times and challenges we live in and we face as believers in Jesus Christ today. Well, a little later on in the sermon, I'm going to introduce you to Elijah the man in, in, in a little more detail. For now, what you need to know as we get started, and I'll try to connect some dots here so we can get into the scripture. For now, what you should know as we begin this morning is that the story of Elijah, again, found in the Old Testament, happened around the year 900 BC. If things like that matter to you, you may want to write that down. Around the year 900 BC, and his story is significant enough that it actually covers seven full chapters of Old Testament history. Five chapters here at the end of 1 Kings, two chapters then as we get into the, the, the book of, of 2 Kings, spans seven full chapters. And, and again, so that'll be our primary text as we go forward in the weeks to come. But first, before we go there, before we even be, begin to get into the story of Elijah himself, beginning in 1 Kings 17, you may recall that I asked you to turn in your Bible to 1 Kings 16, because what we're going to do this morning is take a step back, a half a step back, really, into the final few verses of 1 Kings 16. Because before we meet Elijah the man himself, before we get into his life and his ministry and his accomplishments and all these things he did that apparently made him so fantastically great, we have to take a look. We have to take a look at the times in which he lived and the king under whose reign and authority he primarily carried out his ministry under, because I really believe, and I think you'll see this as we go forward this morning, that Elijah's story makes the most sense. Perhaps in some ways, Elijah's story only makes sense when you understand when he lived and what life in the land of Israel was like at that time. So what I want you to do is grab your Bible, and I want you to listen and follow along as I read 1 Kings 16. I'm going to start in verse 29, I'm going to read down through verse 34, For this is what the word of God says. It says, Now Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel. That was the northern kingdom. You may recall that at a certain point in time, the kingdom of Israel, 12 tribes split. Ten went north, two stayed in the south. They banded together. This is the northern kingdom of Israel. Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. That's the southern kingdom. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria, that was the capital city, 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And it came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, I'll explain that later, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. So he built an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. For in his days, Hiel the Bethelite built Jericho. He laid its foundations with the loss of Abiram his firstborn. He set up its gates with the loss of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he, the Lord, spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Now, there's one more verse we're going to look at this morning in chapter 17, but we're not going to go there yet. 
Because before we go to chapter 17 and get introduced to and familiar with Elijah, there's a couple of things. There's four things total I want to show you in God's word this morning. But the first two come in the six verses or from the six verses we just read. The first of which is this. Before we get to Elijah himself, the first thing we want to look at, the first thing and maybe the biggest thing we need to take hold of is to have a proper understanding, number one, of Elijah's desolate times of the spiritually and morally and ethically and socially and relationally desolate times in which God called Elijah the prophet to live and to serve. First thing I want you to see are Elijah's at times. You know, students of history sometimes wrestle. Certainly you've heard the question raised or, or mentioned before. Students of history sometimes wrestle with the question of whether the times make the man or the man's made for the times. Whether a man or woman is, is shaped like a great historical figure like a Winston Churchill. Was Winston Churchill born and already ready for the times in which he lived and, the, and the, the adversity which he faced? Or did the times make him who he was? I don't know what the answer to that question is. I think it's probably some of both. But what I do know for sure, again, in terms of the story of Elijah, is that as I said a moment ago, you cannot fully understand Elijah and appreciate Elijah apart from a knowledge of the times in which he lived. Because as I said a moment ago, the words there on the screen behind me, in a word, an appropriate summary of the times in which he lived is that they were desolate. And here is a very brief summary, a very short explanation of why that was the case. Here's the deal. If you go back many, many years from this point in Israel's history, remember that David was Israel's greatest king. And the Bible tells us that when David died, his son who took over? Solomon took over. And, and Solomon was in many ways a great man of God as well. And he had many great accomplishments for God. But if you've heard, if you haven't heard Solomon's story, what you need to know about Solomon, and if you have heard of it, what you need to remember about Solomon is that despite his many great accomplishments for God, he had one catastrophic weakness. Catastrophic weakness. A weakness spelled out for it, and if you want to go back to 1 Kings 11, spelled out for us in 1 Kings 11, when it says this, that King Solomon loved many foreign women from the nations, verse 2, 1 Kings 11, concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you. For they, here's why, they will surely turn your hearts away after their gods. God said to his kings, don't marry women from other nations who worship other gods because they're going to have an influence on you and there's only one God I want you to worship. But what does it say at the end of verse 2? It says, but Solomon held fast to such women in love. Go down a couple more verses to verse 6. It says, as a result, 1 Kings eleven six, 6, Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And he did not follow the Lord fully as his father David had done. And here's what Solomon, Solomon did, verse 7. Solomon built a high place, an altar, for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. And thus, in one fell swoop, idolatry entered the kingdom of Israel. And Solomon permitted it. Now when Solomon died, Jeroboam, the kingdom split. Jeroboam became king of the northern kingdom. And the Bible tells us that what Jeroboam did is he not only continued to permit idolatry, he sanctioned it. He said, this is okay, this is permissible for the people of God to do. And over the ensuing 60 years, other kings came and went, ruling over the land, this northern kingdom of Israel. And what the Bible makes clear is each one was more idolatrous than his predecessor. 
Each one allowed more, each one permitted more, each one engaged in it more, until at last, now come back to chapter 16, until at last, 1 Kings 16.30 says this, that Ahab the son of Omri became king, and he did, listen to this, he did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who came before him. He was worse than anybody. He was the baddest of the bad. Why? Because of what it said in verse 32, because he built an altar for Baal. He didn't just permit it. He didn't just sanction it. He built what we understand more clearly, a temple for Baal in the land of Israel, a temple for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Verse 33 says he also made the Asherah. Asherah. Baal was a, a, a male idol deity. Asherah was his female counterpart. What the, what the scholars and the, and the archaeologists tell us is that he built a, a temple for Asherah worship as well. And effectively, uh, once you dig through all the details, the bottom line is this, that when Ahab came along, he effectively, listen, established the worship of Baal as Israel's official state religion. No longer the worship of Yahweh, the one true God. And he said, in Israel, we worship Baal. What you need to know about Baal, there's a lot to know about Baal. You go online and read, there is some interesting history out there. But for our purposes this morning, what we ought to know about Baal is that he was a, a false god, of course, an idol, who was worshipped not just in the land of Israel, but throughout many ancient Middle Eastern kingdoms, in various forms, different flavors and ways, if you will. But the one thing that every nation or kingdom that worshipped Baal had in common, they viewed him as a male god, they often depicted him as having the head of a bull, but Baal, the one thing everyone had in common is they viewed him as the storm god. His weapons were thunder and lightning. And his primary job, and this is huge to understanding the story of Elijah, Baal's primary task was to send and withhold rain. Write that down and remember that. To send and withhold rain. If you think about what you know about the Middle East, even if you've only seen it in pictures, rain is everything, right? If it rains, you live. If it doesn't, you die. If it rains, it's a good year. If it doesn't, it's a bad year. It's the difference between prosperity and impoverishment, whether or not there... So everybody prayed to Baal for rain, begged Baal to bring rain in its proper season, and, and, and they'd be so passionate about this and, and so, so, so consumed by it that what the historians, and even Bible history, if you dig into it, clearly tells us is that the worship of Baal and his female counterpart, Asherah, it ultimately involved, even in the land of Israel, every imaginable form of moral and sexual indecency, deviancy, corruption. It was also a violent religion. It involved self-harm, involved the harm of others. We'll see that as Elijah's story unfolds. But the truly shocking thing about Baal worship in the land of Israel is that under Ahab's reign, things became so bad. Things became so perverse. Baal worship in the land of Israel. Look at verse 33 again at what it says. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Can you imagine that, having that said of you, you did more to provoke God than all your ancestors, to tick him off and make him angry, to inspire his wrath? Even outside the Bible, I came across one source this week that says, as, as the historians have unpacked ancient history, Baal worship, and all these sorts of things, 
that even all the others, it's been shown that all the other Baal-worshipping kingdoms of that day, (laughs) they looked at Israel and said, we may be bad, but they're worse. They viewed Israel's Baal worship as more evil and wicked than their own. They said, we're bad, but at least we're not Israel. Then there's this odd note in verse 34. Look again at your Bible. We're, we're kind of cruising along, getting a, literally the lay of the land, the flavor for the times in which Elijah would appear. And then there's this note, which as you read it, and maybe even reread it, and if you read ahead, maybe you had this question, you read verse 34 and say, well, what in the world is this doing here? It doesn't seem to make any sense at all. Because all of a sudden, we see that Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And then it says this, in his days, Hiel the Bethelite built Jericho. Okay. He laid its foundations with the loss of Abiram, his firstborn. He set up its gates with the loss of Segub, his youngest, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. We say, what in the world is that here for? What's that designed to tell us? It seems out of place. Can I tell you it isn't? In fact, it's not out of place at all. Because without getting sort of too far into the weeds, the deal is this. The Bible tells us that back in the days when Joshua led the people into the promised land, he conquered Jericho. Remember the story, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, the walls come tumbling down, we all know the story, if not, we know the song. Jericho, God said when that happened, he said, let no one ever rebuild Jericho again. And anyone who tries will do so with the loss of his firstborn son at the beginning and the loss of his youngest son at the end. It's a promise. Count on it. And its fulfillment here of that promise is given to us as an illustration. It's as if the author of 1 Kings is saying, let me just give you an example of how bad things got in Israel. Because what this example is here to tell us is how openly and freely and flagrantly defied the word of the Lord was in the times of King Ahab. They knew that promise. Everybody, whatever you do, don't rebuild Jericho. But they did, and, and there's a sense in the language and the way it's, in, in which it's written is that this guy, Heil, didn't do this on a whim. He didn't do it just because he felt like it. He wasn't a developer. It's written in a way that says Ahab told him to and paid for it. I don't care what the law of the Lord says. We're going to do it anyway. In fact, although we aren't told how Heil's two sons died, it may have just been lightning from heaven. It may have been a sickness, an illness of some sort. It has been suggested, and I believe it's entirely possible, that the way in which these two sons of Hiel, the Bethelite, died as a result of the fulfillment of God's promise on the judgment of Jericho is that they had been offered up as human sacrifices. Because by this point in the land of Israel, that's what Baal worship had descended to. The sacrificing of innocent life to plead with Baal to keep sending the rain. What am I saying to you? I'm saying that in a word, Elijah's times were what? What's our word? Desolate. (laughs) You think life is hard right now. (laughs) Imagine this. This is the people of God. This is the land of Israel. And as you may have gathered, because I've suggested it in many ways already, responsibility for much, if not most, of the desolation could be laid squarely at the feet of the second thing I want you to see in the story this morning, Elijah's fearsome adversary. First, we get a grip on Elijah's desolate times. Elijah's desolate times were largely the fault caused by the responsibility of a man who proved to be his fearsome 
adversary. Look again at what it said in verse 29. Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel for 22 years. Now, I'm going to continue reading, but I want to tell you something about the next two verses I'm going to read. They are verses which, if you were an original reader of the Old Testament, hearing the story, one of God's people, but hearing the story for the very first time, there are a couple of points in what I'm about to read that if you were there in the moment hearing it for the first time, this is what you do as someone read the story to you. (gasps) We're going to practice that, okay? Play along. On the count of three, you're going to cover your mouth and gasp, all right? Everybody plays. One, two, three. (gasps) Good. Now hang on to that because you're going to need it. You're going to be shocked, and if you're not, you should be. Because it says in verse 30, Ahab, the son of Omri, he did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before. Now, let's give a little gasp. That's bad, but that's been the pattern. Here's where it gets really bad, and it came about. As though it were a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Jeroboam was the king who first sanctioned idol worship among God's people. Here's your big gasp, all right? Get ready. He married Jezebel. (gasps) Bad news. The daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. Why do we gasp? Because in the same way that you can't truly understand or appreciate Elijah apart from his nemesis, King Ahab, you can't truly understand or appreciate King Ahab apart from his wife, the wicked queen Jezebel. Because while we've already noted that Old Testament law prohibited Hebrew kings from marrying foreign wives, and while there were, in fact, kings like Solomon who married many more foreign wives than Ahab ever did, no one violated that, uh, that prohibition more spectacularly and a greater detriment, perhaps, than Ahab did when he married Jezebel. Well, what made Jezebel so bad? Well, we're going to see a lot of that over the next few weeks. But for one thing, take her father. It says, look, verse 31, it says that Jezebel was the daughter of Ethbaal. Now, in ordinary commonplace language, you know what Ethbaal means? It means I'm with Baal. He's my guy. If you want to know one thing about me, it's that me and Baal, we're like this. That's her father. And what we're going to see in the story as it unfolds is she learned well at her father's feet. Because by the time she arrived as Ahab's new bride into the northern kingdom of Israel, she arrived with a passion, an unquenchable passion to impose idolatry on every man, woman, and child in the land. To the point where we're going to, and we're going to see these things as we go forward. That's why we're not dealing with them in detail today. But to the point we're going to see as we go forward that in chapter 18, having had these elaborate shrines which are alluded to here in this passage, one to, to Baal and another to his female counterpart Asherah, chapter 18 says that Jezebel began an extermination policy plan where she began systematically killing off the prophets of the Lord so there'd be no opposition. To the point where when you get to 1 Kings 19, what you find is that though the land of Israel probably had millions of citizens at the time Elijah lived, it says literally, specifically in 1 Kings 19, that by the time she was through, only 7,000 people remained total. It literally says who had not bowed the knee or kissed the mouth of Baal. You submitted or you died. Pastor Ralph Davis's summary of the life and times of King Ahab is perfect. 
when he says, quote, it looked like Antichrist had arrived ahead of time. (laughs) That's how bad things were. That's how evil things were in the land of Israel. You've got Elijah's desolate times. You've got Elijah's fearsome adversary, plural adversaries, two for the price of one. And again, the reason I say that I think we must have a grasp, an understanding of those two things in order to truly appreciate what Elijah was all about and what he accomplished and what God did did through him, just for that reason, because we see how very dark and how very difficult and adverse the times in which he showed up on the scene were. But it takes us then to the third thing I want you to see. The first thing we see is desolate times. The second thing we see is fearsome adversaries. But then as we move out of chapter 16 and begin in earnest the story of Elijah in chapter 17, the first thing we are shown, the first thing here that I want you to see, according to verse 1 of chapter 17, is Elijah's striking appearance. And I'm not really talking about physical appearance. I'm talking about his appearance on the scene. We begin to realize how truly striking Elijah's appearance was. And as we look at it, I want you to imagine for a moment, because this is the way it originally was, that there's no chapter break between the end of verse 34 and the beginning of verse 1, okay? Because originally there wasn't. You just went right out of one verse into the next, but sometimes those chapter breaks, they slow us down and kill our momentum. We don't want that to happen. Okay, we've just come out of uh, the the exposition of Ahab and Jezebel, the example of of Hiel the Bethelite and all the terrible stuff going on in the land. Then we come to chapter 17, verse 1, where it simply begins now. Now. Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand surely, there shall be neither dew nor rain all these years except by my word. Can I just tell you, maybe, is it a, can I ask, is it, a, is it a bad thing if I say that every time I read this particular verse this week, I thought of when Luke Skywalker showed up at the end of The Force Awakens, all right? Who's, who's with me on this? All right, some of you are like, no. That's exactly what I thought of. All of a sudden, there he is, the hero we've been waiting for. The one that we have been longing for. Because suddenly, here's the deal. When you get to 17 verse 1, everything around is clouds and darkness. The wicked empire is rising. The good guys are scattering. Everybody says, is there any hope left for us? Now, Elijah the Tishbite shows up on scene. And I would suggest to you that his appearance is infinitely more striking than a fictional Jedi knight. Because they'd spend the whole movie looking for him and nobody saw Elijah coming. Not the way it's written here. All of a sudden, there he is standing in the court of Ahab and Jezebel. And it's dramatic. It really is. Because for one thing, as you look at chapter 17, verse 1, what you realize is Elijah shows up on the scene and there's no backstory. There's no preparation. There's no prelude. There's no introduction. Here he simply is. In fact, all we know about him is what verse 1 gives us. He was Elijah the Tishbite, which just sounds tough, right? Elijah the Tishbite. Well, it means he was from this little backwoods, rugged area up north in the land of Gilead, east of the Jordan River, little village, obscure village called Tishbe. So he's Elijah the Tishbite. That's who he is. That's where he's from. He's from the back country. He's a tough guy. And that's all we're told about him. We're given no age, no occupation, 
No family, no, no call to prophetic ministry, no favorite color. We aren't told anything about this guy. It's just here he is. In fact, the only additional thing we're told about him personally as a man in terms of appearance and, and background is, is found in 2 Kings chapter 1. You don't need to turn there. Let me just tell you what it says. 2 Kings 1.8, it says this. He was a hairy man <laughs> with a leather belt bound about his waist. That's it. Here he is, folks. Elijah the Tishbite on the scene. Well, there is one other important thing told about him, though. Or at least that we know about him. It's not expressed specifically, but it's not hard to figure out. And that is, in fact, his name, Elijah. And again, bear in mind some of the things I've told you already, because the name Elijah, what it literally means, and this is hugely important, is Yahweh is my God. Yahweh, the one true ancient God of Israel, is my God. I would suggest to you that's a sermon in itself. Given what I have told you already about Ahab and Jezebel, simply by announcing, I am Elijah. What is he saying? He's saying, Ahab, here's where I stand. Here's who I'm with. Here is the one in whose name I have come. Your wife, her daddy, he, he's with Baal. Not me, I'm with Yahweh. And we're going to do business. We're going to sort this thing out. And he comes with a very simple message. 26 total words in my English translation of the scriptures. This is what he says. Elijah the Tishbite of the settlers of Gilead said to Ahab, quote, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain all these years except by my word. What a message. Because remember, Baal was the storm god, right? Baal was the god everybody thought was in charge of sending or withholding what? Rain. Do you see the throwdown that's about to happen? By my word, they're not, even, not, not just no rain, no morning dew. You know what it's like when it doesn't rain around here for a week. He says, until I say so. Until I come back, no rain, no dew. Then we'll see what your storm god's made of. We'll see what Baal. And then he walks out. He said, Ahab, until God tells me to tell you different, this is the way it is. That's it. No more conversation. Verse 2 does not continue it. He walks out and allows the message to do its work. What do we have here? I love what we have here. We have one man. One man who is gripped by the conviction that our God lives, that our God reigns, and that sinful men do not, everybody say do not, get the last word. They don't decide what goes down and what doesn't. God does. God does. And he had come to remind everyone who is really running the show. And that is the message Elijah's striking appearance was meant to deliver. There's one God, and it's not Baal. I'm with Yahweh. How about you? That's the message. And over the next few weeks, you know what we're going to see is that that simple 26 English word sermon triggered a spiritual earthquake in the land of Israel. And it was about to get tough. It was about to get serious. But that's next week. <laughs> and the weeks after that, because there's one more thing we need to see here this morning to pull it all together. 
at least for the moment, by way of introduction, and it's this. We see the desolate times, number one, in which Elijah lived. We see the, the fearsome adversary that he faced. We, we see the striking appearance that he brought. Well, the last thing I want you to see this morning, and I want you to turn with me to James chapter 5 to see it. I referenced this already, but turn to James chapter 5 in your Bible, and this is where we're going to pull it together and close. So I want you to take note before we finish of Elijah's inspiring legacy. That this man with an inspiring legacy. Because here's what it says in James 5.17. I quoted it earlier. Let me say it again. But I want you to see it with your own eyes when it says this. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Now think about that before we read any further. He was a man with a nature like ours. And the reason we need to think about that is because here's the thing. If everything that Elijah goes on to accomplish, all the things that made him this great, phenomenal, fantastic hero in the nation of of Israel, in the history of the people of God, if all of that is due to the fact that he was intrinsically different than you and me, he just had that little something the rest of us don't get, He had that little whatever it was that that most people of God aren't given. Well, then here's the thing. We can enjoy his story. We can be awed by his story, but we don't have to be changed by his story. We don't have to to do business with this story. But what does the story say? What does James say? Elijah was not a man with a different nature than ours. Elijah was the man, a man with the same nature as ours. He was, everybody say, no different was no different than you and me. And you know what that means? At least what I believe that means? It means that what made him so impactful, the impact he had in his times was not the result of who he was, but of something he did. And James tells us what he did. James tells us what made the difference. I believe the answer is found right here in this same verse. Look at it again. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed prayed. Really, that made the man? Absolutely. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it didn't rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. What made Elijah special was Elijah was a man who prayed. Surprise! (laughs) That's it. And my guess is this was not when he prayed it wouldn't rain. was not the first time he prayed. I'm guessing he'd been praying for years. And I have a hunch, and I realize I have to read between the lines to do this, so you only follow me as far as you're willing to go, but I think I'm on steady ground in saying so. I am guessing that somewhere before this particular prayer was another prayer that went something like, Lord, use me. I see the times, I see the opposition, I see the danger, I see the wickedness. Here am I. Lord, if you want me, use me. And that alone made him a zealot for the Lord. And as such, his inspiring legacy, his enduring legacy, is is that the same thing's possible for us. And so here's the question. It's the only question I'm going to ask you today, and then we're going to close. This morning, the Lord, perhaps, probably most of us already has your heart. You believe in Jesus. You've confessed Christ as Savior. You've celebrated that this morning in communion. God has your heart. Does he have your attention? Does he have your attention? Does he have your life? Not just your heart, but your life. And if so, are you willing to pray, Lord, use me? You know, a friend of mine says often that the worst of times are often really the best of times. It just doesn't feel that way at the time. 
The worst of times are often really the best of times. It just doesn't feel that way at the time. And what he means, among many other things, is we need to remember that even when things are bad, God's still in charge and he's at work. And often what he's looking for and what changes the equation is when someone who knows Jesus as Savior willingly yields to however God wants to use them, to whatever God wants to do with them, because that's when his glory can shine in their story. Now, just because we say, Lord, use me, doesn't mean things change right away. Sometimes they do. Most of the time, it takes a while, because that's how God works. But eventually they will because God is faithful. And that's why the big idea this morning, and again, all of this is introduction. We're going to plow into this in the weeks to come. But the big idea this morning is this, that just like Elijah, God's glory shines brightest in and through us when we willingly yield to him. You want God's glory to shine in your story? It comes down to one word, yield. Yield. Lord, use me. Father, thank you that Elijah, thank you so much that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, that he wasn't a spiritual superhero, that he didn't have magic tool belt the rest of us don't get, that he was just an ordinary guy who somewhere along the line must have somehow prayed, Lord, use me. Father, may that spirit and power that gripped and inhabited the heart of Elijah be the same spirit and power that grips and inhabits the hearts of God's people here at Maranatha and anywhere else in the world where the name of Jesus Christ is praised. Father, thank you that when things seem their worst, sometimes they're really their best, you're getting ready to make a great change. You're just looking for some messengers and some willing servants. Father, may that be said of us that you not only have our hearts, but you have our attention. And Father, as we go from this place, may your glory shine in our story brilliantly and well. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.